things have been on a quite a nice uh, upward trend. Um, so just right now, basing uh, myself in color. Hello and welcome to the One More Mile Podcast. It is Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Harsh. And on today's podcast, we are going to be talking to pro triathlete Karsten Madsen, hails from British Columbia, Canada. Now, if you're not familiar with Karsten, he is one of the top Xterra pros. And I know I've talked about Xterra in the past as a brand uh, but he races for Canada occasionally uh, on the UTI circuit. He, he just competed uh, a few months ago at K- the UTI Cross World Championships. Again, we've, we've kind of talked about this nomenclature with off-road triathlon. Uh, but a lot of the interview relates to that race because Carson's had uh, a number of arrhythmia problems uh, during his career. And, and so he's gives a pretty frank discussion about that and uh, his recovery over the past few months uh, and really the success that he's had in the last probably uh, four or five races that he's done. So so we sat down and talked about that, talked about training, talked about life as a pro, uh, really a lot of cool stuff. I, I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. And it is mostly unedited, so don't like to trim things down too much. Uh, just let people kind of talk and, and tell their stories. So hope you enjoy that. On the podcasting front, I had a lot of stuff going on, been been still developing the podcast, and so you're going to be seeing some changes. I know I keep saying that, but but we are actually doing that. I brought on an advisor for the podcast, um, and I'm going to be working on some other things. If you are a listener, uh, again, we are still looking for a co-host, and I'm looking for a number of other areas to fill. If you've got some technical skill, web skills, uh, podcasting skills, technical skills, any anything, uh, and you would like to contribute to this podcast, please email me at go one more mile at gmail.com. That's go one more mile at gmail.com. The other thing that you're going to be noticing, at least for the next few podcasts, there's not going to be a lot of discussion of sponsors. We're still working out the sponsor aspect of things. I've got uh, some stuff that that I'm transitioning from as a a racer, and 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 so I'm trying to get all of those to align. All the while trying to set up a new program, a new major at a new job. And, and, and so that's going to be starting pretty, uh, pretty excited. I uh, got a, just a few days before we kind of roll that out. So I've been in the lab trying to get the lab set up and getting that going. Uh, but I, I do have a lot of ideas that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put together and I'm really interested in, in kind of transforming the podcast. So we are going to be making some changes, still going to see the tip cast. Uh, I'm really hoping to see some more articles and I am actually working on some articles to put up on the website, but the website really needs an overhaul. It's probably going to be low on the priority list right now, unless I can get some help for that. 
Um, but again, if you are a listener, you like the podcast, uh, please email me, go one more mile at gmail.com. You can also head on over to the website, www.go1mm.com. Hit the donate button. Uh, donations, really important, really helpful. Uh, again, as we develop this podcast, uh, the costs are going to go up. And so it's really important to get that uh, kind of kind of dialed in and and start working on some other things and down the line uh really working on a big project so so hopefully in the next probably four to six months things will start to come together i'll be able to talk about that more but hoping to tie the podcast into some some larger projects so so really really excited about that but without further ado let's talk to karsten madsen how are you doing karsten Hey, I'm well. Thanks again so much for uh, for having me on your uh, your podcast. Cool. Well, I'm I'm really excited to actually get somebody on uh, to talk to talk Xterra off road try. Um, I've been competing for for well over a decade now, and uh, I think it's a cool sport. But I'm 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 really interested in talking with you and kind of you know hearing about your story uh you know i've known i i know that you've had a lot of kind of ups and downs um but 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 you definitely had a lot of success in the sport uh and to give people a little bit of background and i'm going to let you do you know, you know most of the talking i think back in april you were competing in the itu cross world championships before suffering a pretty severe bout of afib is that correct yeah, um, I mean, we've we've uh, since I think dug up some other theories uh, on the day of what happened, but um, it was 100% um, a heart arrhythmia problem, which ultimately uh, caused me to lose uh, consciousness uh, coming into T2. So um, yeah, it was a, a pretty terrible time, um, but. Um, I think fortunately um, I had a, an incredible support crew uh, that, you know, within, you know, maybe 20 minutes of coming to, I had already spoken uh, then to uh, my coach. Um, and, you know, I'd say within 40 minutes um, we kind of had a plan of what we were going to do. And, I mean, the first one was probably – uh, for my coach was probably the harder one to hear. I mean, it's what I knew deep down needed to happen. Um, but, um, it was basically racing is done, uh, until we, until we can kind of unearth, uh, what happened and how it happened and how can we be safe moving forward and, or if we can be safe moving forward. And it was a pretty tough time because I had other races planned and flights booked and, you know, as an athlete, uh, you get your mind very set on your plan and your process. And when something interrupts it, um, and no matter the severity of it, it's it's still something that, that weighs on you. And uh, at that current juncture, again, deep down, it was like I knew in my core that it was the right thing to do was to cease racing and to spend some time with you know some very smart doctors um, and, and, and uncover some answers and luckily the Canadian Sport Institute um, basically helped um, I basically transited back from Europe to Arizona where I was based at the time I packed up all my stuff from Arizona and headed to Canada uh, Victoria BC to be specific 
and I was uh, in a doctor's office, um, you know, just a few days after the whole incident, um, and with some pretty considerable travel in between. Um, obviously, you could probably imagine that there was a lot of uh, up and down thoughts um, based on, yeah, like, you know, not really knowing anything and knowing that I was going to be going through a heap of poking and prodding and, you know, a lot of tests and, and whatnot. And, and uh, but again, I, I'm super thankful that the timeline, because uh, obviously in Canada, our health system is a little different than the U.S. And, um, and yeah, I mean, at the time, we didn't know how quickly it could be accomplished. And obviously, with, you know, racing as a job, um, the quicker something can be accomplished was, you know, advantageous. But it, um, so we were looking at options of potentially doing this in the U.S. and, and what those, uh, what that might entail. Um, but ultimately, again, super fortunate that I had every single test that they needed done within about a week's time. Something that would normally take over a year in Canada to complete. I, they, you know, got me in and I was going to appointments on Friday at, you know, 5.15, knowing that, you know, someone would have been staying later than they normally would. And, you know, that stuff just never, um, it never got lost on me. I, I really did have an immense amount of um, gratitude um, for what was, what was being accomplished and how it was being accomplished. Um, so, and then, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just going to say. So, so what what did they uh, what did they determine, and 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 how did you? Because I, I mean, I think this would be a really short story if if you weren't still competing. Yeah. Um, what what did they learn, and, and and what was kind of your, um, I guess your mindset and your plan of getting back into competition? Well, um, essentially, the first bit of the testing. My head was actually, I was starting to wrap my head around how can I manage my expectations to basically think through you might not be racing. Because at the end of the day, I had passed out. Um, and I'd never done that. Um, I'd never done that prior to when I you know, felt that there might have been a, a heart arrhythmia thing going on. I'd never passed out with any of the arrhythmias I had before. Because, again, atrial fib was something that I had back in 2010 and I needed to be uh, cardioverted out of that uh, arrhythmia and you know I went basically nine years um, without any major incident you know there would be stuff that I would maybe think oh maybe that's AFib maybe it's not um, and obviously there was you know a heap of anxiety that you know kind of happened uh, back in 2010 with it um, but I had really put it past me in, in a lot of ways and so as I came into um, that, that period in 2019 when basically all the tests were being completed, I was getting an echocardiogram on the heart, and, you know, again, you don't know what they're going to find, right? And, and, you know, as you exercise and keep training, your heart is ever-changing. Uh, it's growing, it's getting bigger, and so new things can come. And I think one of my biggest fears was um, do I have a new arrhythmia and or something else wrong with my heart that, yeah, they deem is unsafe to race, and that's just it. You know, again, you're not going to get cleared for racing if they believe that you're going to die, um, and nor do I want to race if that is a outcome. Right. So, 
um, ultimately, um, after all the tests were done, uh, the echocardiogram uh, revealed that the heart looked good. It beated fine. And uh, since the event, I was in sinus rhythm and wasn't coming out. I wore a halter, which showed no episodes of, you know, and again, it's such a small snapshot of, you know, a 24-hour halter doesn't really paint the whole picture. Um, in the stress test that I did, I was able to get my heart rate up to about 200 beats per minute, which I was pretty satisfied uh, with that because I wanted to really have a good run. And some of the things that I used to feel were uncovered as just being PVCs, so um, just an early uh, contraction of your ventricle. But again, nothing that's a pretty common thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so yep. nothing, nothing that, you know, worried anyone. Um, the only thing that showed up in the echocardiogram, which is something that was there back in 2010, um, is I have a little bit of uh, regurge in a bicuspid valve. Uh, so essentially the heart beats with such vigor that there's a little bit of leakage, uh, if you will, where um, the blood is just kind of spritzing out, I guess. Yeah. Uh, is the best way they described it. And, and essentially, all that came from that is just, okay, every year you're going to get a yearly echocardiogram while you're racing to just keep that um, keep that in eye. And, and again, they kind of said, like, yeah, you can probably expect that when you're 60, you're going to be doing a valve replacement. But for the time being, you're fine. Um, and then the next big step was meeting with the electrical uh, cardiologists. Um, and this is where, again, I was pretty blown away with the support of that there's this amazing ablation clinic right in Victoria, B.C. And, again, people from or doctors from all over the world come to learn how to do ablations uh, from these people. And, you know, not just one doctor sat in on my stuff. There was multiple doctors sitting in um, and... Again, that's something that is not lost on me, and I understand that I got a very different treatment than what maybe someone else would, as I think there's a lot of interest level in, you know, someone who's 27 years old, um, racing professionally, and um, having, you know, heart arrhythmia problems, and so a lot of them were actually interested, and, and again, and, you know, looking to help and, and to find a, a good solution, and ultimately... Uh, we made the decision that we were going to do um, an ablation study. Uh, so that's where essentially they put four catheters up my femoral artery, uh, and they essentially induce all the arrhythmias that you have um, and or try to see what arrhythmias they can, can induce. And ultimately, uh, through that, it was quite an experience of that you are um, – you're semi-sedated, uh, so during it, I could feel everything that was happening, but not super, not super aware of everything. I guess you just kind of know what's going on. You can feel things that you know. You can feel them playing around with your heart and whatnot. And again, it's it's safe as you you know you've got pads all over you. If they you know put you into cardiac arrest, they're just gonna zap you out. Um, but um, essentially. Um, what they found um, is what we were kind of guessing that I had, um, and they basically found SVT, uh, so supraventricular tachycardia. Um, and the decision uh, was made to leave it alone at the time because um, essentially we were going in there to, you know, 
to look at what was going on, and we were going to fix things that were were within a risk tolerance that everyone had agreed upon. And we agreed upon about one in 1,000 at this time because, again, the way that they looked at it, the way that I looked at it, and everyone around me was, you know, I had two major events within a nine-year period. And, you know, through that nine years, you look at the, you know, the athlete that I became, uh, me needing a pacemaker in sport being done because, um, you know, for something that isn't totally impeding my life. Um, you know, I was I'm able to win races at, you know, very high level and been on some podiums at, you know, the highest level of my sport. And, and you know, there's obviously a bit of a, you know, why, why, yeah, why change, you know, a part of your heart um, if it's not uh, fully or if it's, if it's working most of the time. And, and again, to have a competition being ruined from time to time, I can live with that. Um, and so, anyways, I mean, to make, a, you know, the, the longer story a little shorter, um, they ultimately decided that they were, they were, you know, they found this SVT. The problem was is that they found it um, with a, basically a dual AV node, um, so two pathways that essentially make my atriums uh, beat um, and ultimately can make them flutter as well. And so um, based on the SVT being that close to that, you know, that AV node, they decided, yeah, we were going to leave it because that was in a, you know, a risk tolerance that, like was more one in 100 um and um yeah we decided um you know kind of to leave it alone um and ultimately like when i came to um it was a you know a little bit of a relief because essentially what what was discussed was hey look we found svt and here's our theory of that we found it dual av node we believe that SVT is what onsets or could onset your atrial fib. So here's the great news. We now have a roadmap. If this becomes a persistent problem, we can do something about it, and it might even take care of this atrial fib uh, as well. Um, and, you know, theoretically saying you're kind of cured. I mean, obviously ablation is not, you know, it's not just that cut and dry. Um, and then the other decision I, you know, again, that was lightly made at the time was, okay, and, well, at least in, in my head, with the information that I was given uh, by, you know, Dr. Novak, who did the procedure, was, you know, you have some options of if it becomes persistent, we can go back in and we can use a method called cryo-freezing rather than ablation. So ablation is um, a 1 in 100 risk but it has a 95% success rate of, you know, basically clearing up the problem. But again, one in 100 of needing a pacemaker and sport being done. The other option was cryo-freezing, and that basically is, you know, in his words, a one in 500 risk, but only a 93% success rate. I mean, I'm not, you know, the biggest math guy in the world, but those numbers are, like, pretty, pretty good to me. And then, you know, furthermore... Um, the, the doctor, I, you know, I, I really respected his self-confidence because then he even said, well, in, when I do it, crowd freezing is my specialty. I more say one in 1,000. 
Um, and so part of me at the time was like, well, shit, why didn't you just go and do it? Um, but obviously you need consent and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was a super long period of time that, um, you know, you don't really realize, um, you know, again, it, it's a stressful time, but you know, I look back and actually I'm very proud of the way I managed it. And, and again, I, I really believe um, I did a pretty good job of managing the idea of seeing the end. Um, and I think, you know, I don't like to think that, you know, I'm special or anything like that because there's been a heap of athletes that have come back from a slew of different things and setbacks. And, you know, I look at my setback and yes, it sounds really bad because it's the heart and stuff like that. But in terms of a timeline and things like that for recovery, like, you know, there's people that break bones that, you know, have a much harder road back than what I do. Um, again, though, there is a component of that. It is the engine that, you know, works the rest of your body. And there, you know, there was a little bit of lag time and now I got to retrust this heart again and, and be okay with it. But, um, there was a level of, of comfort, I think this time, um, that I had because, we had gone into such depth and we've, you know, unturned every stone to find out, um, you know, every potential cause, um, or, you know, every potential thing that could come up. And so essentially to me, it felt that, well, we have a plan if it happens again. And that just was like this immense amount of peace of mind. And also that I was connected with these, you know, extremely smart people and doctors that, again, and I asked them point blank, even after the procedure, do you see any reason for me to not race anymore? And again, if the answer was yes, we don't feel you should race anymore, well, then that was going to be it. Um, and ultimately, again, it was talking to the sports doctor as well, even, you know, a week after the procedure. And again, I asked him, you know, do you see any reason for me to stop or to you know, take away the privilege of racing. And he said, like, that would be like saying I shouldn't let someone race because they might break their arm. He's basically, that was the idea of the percentages. Yeah. And it, it yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one, one of the things where, where, um, you know, the general, the general public has a hard time understanding, it, you know, first and foremost, I mean, there's a lot that ties into this. I know that 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 triathlon in general gets, um, you know, a lot of negative press when 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 you have a death in the sport. And we yeah. we had one this summer in Richmond, and you know, uh, I had friends. They're like, oh, you know, you, you, do you do you think it's safe to compete? And you know, what what do you think? Like, do you feel like at risk? I'm like, no, I, I it's. It's it's complicated, and when whenever you're talking about cardiac conditions, especially the the electrical activity of the heart, and I I, I think you did a really got, good job explaining it, is that the heart itself is a pump and it's a mm -hmm. muscle, and 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 that's part of it, but it's got an electrical system, and the electrical system is really what's going to drive uh, how smoothly it contracts, and so we have those atria which are um, kind of at the top of the heart, 
and they they push blood um, into the ventricles. The ventricles are really the driving force for all the blood in the body. And so those atria, you know, kind of top up those ventricles so that they're they're you know they're ready to push out the most blood that they can. And the electrical systems between those two points are separated. So you had mentioned the AV node, and the AV mm -hmm. node is there to basically say, okay, well, I've got this electric signal, the atria are contracting, i got to wait a minute before I mm -hmm. start contracting the ventricles. And it gives it a little bit of, de of a delay. So if they ablate that, what they're saying is that if you've got a real problem in your atrial electrical system, if we ablate it, no electricity is getting through to the lower part of the heart. Mm -hmm. And that means a pacemaker because, again, you have to have that connectivity. And so it, it's, it, it looks like they, they were, you know, they're really trying to find that, that you know, that root cause. And so um, for some folks, uh, you know, ablation is the only thing that's going to work. And in yeah. your case, um, you know, you're really fortunate because they – Well, and that's, and that's exactly it because if, if this was a problem that once a week I was going into this arrhythmia – um, you know, then you look at it and think, well, yeah, like this is terrible quality of life if I'm, you know, because, I mean, this is where the uh, general population wouldn't know or feel what I feel, but only there's there's a small sliver of the world that would be, you know, I think my age and, and be, you know, in the kind of physical shape that I'm in and, and have this feeling of like what it feels like um, for your heart because, I mean, I'll be honest that when I was in these arrhythmias, especially when I woke up or gained consciousness again in Pontevedra, um, and I was remember just laying by the barriers and looking up, and, and this, is, this is something I haven't really uh, told anyone, or for the most part. I mean, there's a few people that know, but I actually kind of thought I was dying. I thought that, you know, because um, it was so foreign. I mean, I knew what yeah. AFib felt like. Um, but I'd never been laying on the ground and thinking like, what, what the hell? Like I can barely like, again, I mean, AFib makes it feel like you can't breathe and you can't do anything. And all, all, I think the other thing to understand is that, you know, when your grandparents have atrial fib, a lot of times they don't even know what's going on because a 30% cardiac loss for them, um, isn't as magnifying as it would be for me because, I have all this muscle tissue to feed, and so when the heart is not pumping efficiently, all those muscles are, are kind of like um, suffocating. And so it makes me go from being, you know, again, super fit to, you know, I can barely walk. It's the most uncomfortable uh, feeling. Yeah. Um, and so, again, based on it, you know, if it was persistently happening like that, well then, yeah, it's like the obvious choice of let's, let's get this thing ablated and let's do what we can do. And if it's not, like if it's not, like again, we look at it and there's two major events nine years apart. I hope to God I can go another nine years with nothing and do, you know, a bunch of other great things in the sport and then I might be done. And then I can detrain and maybe my heart just goes. So obviously I think Again, you're always better to avoid um, procedures if you can. Um, and, you know, I think I had a great call with um, actually an ex-professional cyclist uh, just a few days ago. And um, she was basically telling me how um, she had to end her cycling career based on 
um, ventricular uh, VTAC. Um, and that one, like, you know, that was one thing that that's just a game ender. If they find that, it's it's done. And, you know, she has a defibrillator installed now. But it was a pretty pretty great call because, again, this is the idea of there's there's a lot of people, like when I was in these waiting rooms, you know, I'm looking around and, you know, they're all looking at me like I have two heads on why are you here because they're, you know, 70, 80 years old. And there's very few people that, you know, are in the age bracket. Because, I mean, even then, like I would say um, about once a month, I'll get someone contact me through social media about, you know, hey, I'm a 40-year-old triathlete with atrial fib, which that's still pretty young for atrial fib. But, you know, it's it's definitely not, you know, like when I had it first being an, you know, 18-year-old kid, um, that was pretty pretty freaky. Um, and so it was kind of comforting to talk to someone who, was also, you know, like she was 23 at the time when they found uh, the ventricular uh, tachycardia or, well, VTAC. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think for, for, you know, where we are now, this is, this is always the, um, you know, the bias that we run into. Um, we, we think that more things are, 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 are things are more prevalent. Um, because we hear about them more, but the reality, if we just take triathlon alone in the U.S., um, you have over 2 million individual participations per year. And so, you know, 40 years ago, you didn't have that many people participating in sport in general. And so if you mm-hmm. have just a larger cross-section, you're, you're going to see more and more of these the, totally. these cases come up so it's um it's it, it's definitely you know something that's pretty scary and and i think that we 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 become more aware of it now just because of really high profile um you know tragedies that occur mm-hmm. but you, you know here you are you're uh you know kind of post incident um you're you're 27 Yep. Um, and now you're 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 what like three four races back into your season. Uh, how how have things been progressing? Yeah, I mean this is the part where essentially I was super fortunate that again I have a list of sponsors that that backed me. Um, that in the time you know I said that you know I indefinitely was pausing from racing and they said. Uh, we don't care like i mean they care but like we don't you're more to us than an athlete we want you to be healthy we want we want you to come back in a timeline that fits you don't feel like you got to come back because you know you know whatever you got to do your job it was more you're doing your job right now like you just take care of yourself and we'll worry about the rest and furthermore like some of those sponsors like even were paying out performance bonuses that i weren't wasn't earning at the time which was a huge stress relief because obviously if you're not racing for the most part you're not really making money um and uh so that was like again a super sigh of relief so all i had to worry about was getting myself fit and it was actually pretty in a way i looked at it as a pretty exciting challenge if there was basically going to be five races over um what was it five or no four races over five weeks um which you know, it was a pretty, pretty big, pretty big hit of racing, and three of them were basically back to back to back. And I knew that they were progressively going to get better as they went, as long as you know I was training smart and doing all that stuff. And um, 
you know, there was obviously some days of frustration because you're super out of shape at, you know, a time of the year where you want to be really in shape. And, but, you know, luckily, like, I think that with what, there's so much of sport that I believe is mental. And I think because of these setbacks that I've had, I've had time to focus on the mental aspect and I've had time to focus on almost like re-harnessing all this like mental energy and you know I was able basically go into the race of you know in I think in a very different mindset than maybe what other guys are going into that same race and I was more I was inspired to to race because I could just race and I was cleared to do it and you have this like grateful feeling and you know I mean luckily yeah it was it was able to produce me results and again I was able to suffer still at a level that you know I felt was you know wow if I get fit and can still suffer like this like there's going to be some good things that happen and you know race one was you know I was third place in Victoria and I mean, it was a race that I'd won uh, two times prior, and so there was a little bit of frustration that, you know, I knew how I would feel on that course if I was 100%, and, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 100% when I raced it, but, again, I mentally kind of prepared for it and knew that, okay, well, then I race in Quebec the weekend after, and it'll be a little better, and it was. I was second there, um, and then... Then the real challenge was going to Beaver Creek and going to altitude, um, but used a little bit of, you know, scientific research to figure out, like, okay, don't have time, didn't have any time to acclimatize to altitude, and so I flew in the Friday before the race, rolled the dice with a lot of things on, you know, if a bike doesn't show up, et cetera, but kind of just looked at it as it was a gamble, and I needed, this year was a bit of, like, all of it was a gamble because I'm trying to still have a full ticket uh, for the Pan Am series in terms of uh, six races counting. And um, that one surprised me because then, you know, I think Beaver Creek happened and all of a sudden I realized, like, what I was doing was working in terms of I was at this time, I was, I've been writing my own program. Um, and, you know, I was able to be third there in Beaver Creek at, a, you know, basically a top-level Xterra race and a very good, strong field and, I think the part that was most satisfying was I had the fastest uh, run split of the day by, like, I think around about a minute. And that ran me from, I think, sixth place into third uh, off the bike. And so that was incredibly satisfying and gave me a lot of confidence and essentially just, you know, then got a little weekend off, so to speak. And then we were in Mexico racing. And that race, again, was another big step up of that, you know, this time now I was, you know, I rode my way up to um, a very talented athlete in Sam Osborne and then was actually, you know, kind of trying to, you know, I think on the bike we were attacking each other up the big climb. And, and I think for me that was uh, a really big step forward of that, you know, this race was at altitude as well. And, you know, I wasn't coming from altitude where everyone else kind of was and, you know, it was just kind of me and him battling up front. And, um, and yeah, so, again, it was a, another second place. And, I mean, I'll, I'll be clear, like, you know, as an athlete, like, you don't – no one likes losing. But um, in the circumstances of what the year was, and, you know, I actually really couldn't believe that 
I had, I had kind of gotten myself in this kind of form that quick. And again, I, I attribute it a lot to, you know, this phrase, you know, or this idea of being inspired. And so my work that I was doing in between races was again, targeted and thought out, but it was also being accomplished in a manner of, of optimism rather than pessimism. Because I mean, it's easy. It would be easy to just sit and say, well, like, whoa, well, why would I succeed? I had four catheters in my femoral artery, you know, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I'm terribly out of shape. I'm a little heavier than what I'd want to be and et cetera, et cetera. But instead, like you far better served to say, yeah, like I went through some stuff, but instead that's why I'm going to have success is because, you know, I've, I've, I've have a good process and I have a good hustle and I have a good grind and I'm, I'm working hard and I'm doing what I can and I'm, you know, sleeping well and eating well. And again, writing a list of reasons why you'll succeed rather than creating a list in your head of reasons why you'll fail. And, um, again, that's where I, like I talked about earlier, I believe that performance is 60% mindset, 40% physical. And that's, if you can get your mind right, um, it's pretty crazy what you can do. Well, I'll tell you from my uh, from my experience in my racing career, because um, I started off as a road cyclist, uh, my my head probably tanked more races than uh, anything else, and it, it just just a variety of like expectation based on how you feel um, can just just ruin um, yeah. your. Uh, you know your race outcome, your your outlook, um, and, and and probably one of the best lessons I learned too too late um, is, is I, I, I I've heard two different uh, pro tour level riders say say in in various ways. You know, it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter how we feel on the bike. Uh, you know, this is our our profession. You know, we show up to work. You know, if yeah. you show up to the office, you got a headache. You know, it's one thing if you're like, ser- like seriously ill, but you, you, mm-hmm. you've got a headache. You're a little tired. You, you just be like, ah, oh, I can't do it today. You know, yeah. it's like you show up and you do your job. And and for them, um, you know, if they don't feel that good, they 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 still have to do their job. And I think that mm-hmm. um, that 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 perspective has really kind of changed the way that 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 I feel because I I knew in my head. I could show up to races that I felt horrible at and I would do well. And I had that track record. And no matter how many times it happened, it's like every time it happened again, I didn't believe it. Um, and, and, and now it's like, ah, I feel like crap, ah, whatever. I mean, I, I, I take so little stock in how I feel, especially the, you know, the day before, I mean, the day before is meaningless mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. You, you, you're not even racing, but you know, day before morning of, um, and, and, and a couple of years ago, I went to nationals and I showed up the nationals in the morning of, I just, I, I felt awful and I felt terrible the whole week. Uh, you know, in, in, in within probably five minutes of the start, I felt great. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it just all kind of came together. And, and I think that that's one lesson that I think a lot of people have to learn is that, you know, you've got to, in a sense, dissociate how you feel, um, with how you're, you're performing because a lot of times, you know, you're not 
feeling good. And let's face it, the the better you get, um, the faster you go, the harder it gets. I, I, mean, I mean, racing's never a pleasant experience. You know, it's never, it's never like, wow, I, I just want this to go on forever. You know, it's, it's, no, uh, but it's, it's painful. It's, yeah. And it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good, I like, I love that line of like, do your job. And cause at the end of the day, like, yeah, if you want to make a profession out of this, like there's minimums that you have to do to earn money. Um, you know, if that's a performance bonus, that's getting on a podium, like, you know, so there's there's this idea of like, yeah, my legs don't feel good today, but it's a little bit. And this was always, I, I love this. Is This was one of the things that Josiah told me when I was younger of like, you know, hearing other athletes, you know, say, oh, I didn't have the legs today. And, you know, and that's where I've had a great mentor and, and a guy like him is he's kind of like, what do you mean? Like, don't have the legs today. Like, yeah, sometimes I feel like crap, but it's like, well, don't have the legs today. So this is going to be a lot harder than what it needs to be. Um, but that's the thing. It's the idea of doing your job and, um, and that's whatever you set out your job to be or whatever you train for. And, um, and I think, you know, again, like you said, racing isn't a pleasant experience because during it, there's a lot of, you know, you, you just have to lean into the suffer that you feel. But ultimately I think the part of racing, uh, and it, you know, if people can get themselves this place, it's a, it's a, it's quite a, a simplistic and, and sim, you know, kind of simple idea of you just work your way into these little small corners of your mind and these crevices and cracks where, you know, everything is just hurting, but there's these like, just these, it's pretty crazy of like, you're hurting so bad that you just see someone like, you know, 30 seconds up the road and you just lean into this like suffering where you're like, I can get them. And the moment that goes in your mind where you say, I can get them, um, you will. And, and, you know, it comes down to, you know, practicing that skill and rehearsing that idea in training. You know, there's, you know, if I'm doing, you know, a run workout or, or a bike workout, there's lots of narratives that go through my mind. And, and again, you're imagining things on training so that way when it's real and racing you've rehearsed that idea and you know if i think of today i did a you know a track session and it was a build run where you know i was kind of getting faster and the time durations were going down but at the end it was just you know after 25 minutes of work i had five minutes left where i had to run faster and literally the idea i got in my head was you have to run more than a mile in five minutes um, and you know, as you're breathing hard in between, you know, from doing a 10 minute piece to about two or five, you're breathing hard and, you know, you're on your recovery and, you know, the idea is like, oh, this is going to hurt, which is okay. It's okay to recognize something's going to not feel good and it's going to hurt. But then it, you know, the next breath needs to be, I can do this and I will do this. And then you figure out in the math in your head, okay, I got to run through 400 in this. I got to go through 800 in this. And then the last two laps pretend like it's everything to a finish line because there's going to come a day where someone's going to be with you with 800 meters to go and being able to have the ability to not choke and to be able to, to unload, um, what you need to get to the finish line. Like I think of Beaver Creek, that's the difference between me being third and fourth was literally a pass with about 600 meters to go where I saw him and I said, I can get him. 
and did, and then, you know, kind of ran it through to the finish line. So and that's where, yeah, I mean, again, it doesn't just happen overnight where all of a sudden you're like, and, it, and I, I mean, again, I think of how many races I blew because of a poor mental mindset um, where, you know, now it's just been something that, again, let me try to incorporate this idea of training the mind while I'm training the body. And again, it's been, uh, I think, extremely successful uh, thus, like, thus far this year. Great. Let's hold that thought. I'm going to take a quick break because when we come back, I want to talk more about training. Sure. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying this interview with Karsten Madsen and all the other great interviews, uh, discussions, and tips that I offer on this podcast, please head on over to www.go1mm.com. Com. That's www.go1mm.com. There you can donate. Uh, you can also find some articles that I'm going to be working on. Uh, if you want to contribute to the podcast further, you can email me at go one more mile at gmail.com. That's go one more mile at gmail.com. And let me know how you want to help out. If you have any technical skills, web skills, anything like that, I would really appreciate it. Uh, also, if you want to get more involved in the podcast, you want to be a contributor, uh, even some blog, blog articles, uh, feel free to email me. You can also email me your questions and comments. Let's get back to the interview with Karsten Madsen. Welcome back to the One More Mile podcast. On this month's show, we're talking with pro triathlete Carson Madsen on his career as an off-road triathlete, uh, and we are talking a little bit about training uh, right now, initially mental training. Um, Carson, can you tell me, you know, kind of what your approach is to preparing for, for Xterra, and, and I know that you have a, uh, you know, a road kind of triathlete background, but um, can you describe the, the I, I think, the key differences in preparation for off-road triathlon versus road triathlon? Yeah, it's, um, it's quite a balance. Uh, at the end of the day, there's, there's two competing ideas of, again, there's a technical aspect of being able to handle your bike. Uh, and so that's a part that needs to be respected. But then also there's this other, you know, part of, um, being able to have an engine to, you know, be able to get yourself up these mountains. And then there's a strength element and component to it all. And so um, structuring training for off-road triathlon is, again, there's there's some stuff that, in a way, it's just the idea of keeping it simple. Um, and at the end of the day, for our racing, threshold and being in that zone four is really the bread and butter, um, you know, kind of joke with, you know, a few guys that I race with and, you know, Josiah especially, you know, learned a lot of stuff through him. And we always just joke that like, you know, threshold is our job. Like that's the majority of the training, um, the majority of intervals, because that's, you know, when it comes to racing, you race just sub threshold for the most part, because again, you're preloaded from a swim. And so you ride, um, and run just a little bit under what your threshold would be. So, again, it's a good zone to train. Um, but in terms of me specifically, um, I've trained a lot uh, over the last year, few years, um, well, really last few chunk of years with the Canadian national team and an ITU-based squad. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of training with uh, the, the best ath- the ITU athletes in the world, uh, not, 
you know, not just continentally or whatever, like, you know, on the WTS and the worldwide. Uh, I've been fortunate to, to get to, you know, learn a lot uh, from them and get this element of speed. And, again, if you look at an ITU race and you look at an Xterra race, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the, the polarizing hard and the almost nothing. So, again, you know, the idea that, you know, if you're mountain biking, you could be going up an incline and putting out just a heap of watts and then have this descent where it's back down to zero. And so, um, so for me, training with a, a squad or a group that, you know, really, um, that really kind of respects that element of racing has is, is always been important to me. And then balancing in how much I mountain bike comes to it, um, comes to a bit of a, a fine art of that you're balancing training load. Obviously, mountain biking, there's a lot of jarring. And so you, you just have to balance, you know, getting in that workload um, plus, you know, getting in the strength components and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, that's been my personal uh, experience. And then, again, with uh, as well, I do... Uh, coaching and stuff on the side and with a lot of the athletes that I have it's again it's kind of expanding their mind to think you know again we're going to work the engine and that doesn't mean mountain biking every day it means super crisp intervals where you were able to pedal out every single 10 minutes of that you know said piece rather than you know you'll you know athletes that are kind of learning Xterra they just think that oh I only need to be on a mountain bike and yeah like you can do intervals on a mountain bike but doing yeah, that, a nice manicured road yeah where I, you're, I yeah. hate doing anything other than like like mountain biking on a mountain bike i just you know i need to i i need to get the work done um and it's yeah. much harder to do especially yeah yeah i mean i I've, I've i've talked with a few pro mountain bikers and and um you know todd wells i always mm-hmm. you know comes to mind because he he would spend the majority of his his, his really quality training on a road bike but he said yeah. you, know, you know it's like if i'm gonna do something on a mountain bike it has to really relate to uh you know the racing situation that 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 i'm preparing for you just can't go out on some random trail and do um you know do repeats or something like that and it's it's no. it's yeah. really about getting that quality work in mm-hmm. um that matters yeah and that's where again i've if i'm on a mountain bike i'm looking to build out the skill of my you know kind of riding and Again, that was one of the big decisions on why I decided to move and base myself out of Whistler, B.C. more, was that there is a plethora of trails that push me far beyond my abilities. And the idea of, again, exceeding the demands of your competition, and I think that's the biggest thing with Xterra Racing, is is looking through elevation profiles, looking at how technical something can be, and then exceeding that demand in your training because then when you show up on race day and this is a large part of how you feel confident about yourself before a race is that you know that you've exceeded the demands of what the race will be and so the only thing that you do get nervous about are the uncontrollables things like a flat tire um or you know some crazy hypothetical thing like a tree falling down in front of you or something crazy um and that's where, which happens. You know, it it <laughs> that, does, that, yeah. That happens. Alabama, that happened uh, in 2000, or well, I guess last year in Alabama, um, we went out onto the bike, and 
yeah, there was a tree that had fallen down the night before that was too big for the course people to cut. Um, and it was like, yeah, like all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, got to do a flying dismount and like hike the bike over. But everyone else has to do it, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, uh, I, but yeah. I remember one year at, in, in Richmond, uh, we, we had a tree come down during the race. I and so the first that. lap, yeah. you, Pros you had to – through that. I remember that. No. Yeah. So, so it was like the first lap I came through, and, and I was like, I, I, you know, climbing over, climbing under. Um, yeah. you know, and then the next lap, it was like cleared and I was like, wow, but, but, but that kind of crazy stuff can happen. And, uh, you don't, you don't see that in road tries. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, very, there's a lot more that can go wrong, but again, I think though, something that I used to really struggle with, you know, like nerves before a race and, you know, I used to barely be able to sleep the night before a race where now it's like, God, I have to like get my head velcroed off the pillow because it's you know i sleep easy um you know when you, you when you've prepared and you know what you, you you've done what you've needed to do um you can sleep really easy the night before a race and as well too with you know having a notebook where you keep this list of ideas on you know the reasons why you'll succeed because uh, anytime you do get a little bit of nervous energy you just look through this laundry list of things on that you've done over the past however long you want to keep a list of all these areas on, you know, what you did well. And it can be of like these stupidest things in terms of like, ah, like I ate a chocolate bar, you know, last Thursday when I really wanted one. That's a reason why I'll succeed. Whatever makes you think you will succeed is, can go on that list. So when you look back, you're just like, wow, like, yeah, I've really done a lot of good stuff. Cause it's easy to get caught up in just, you know, again, living session to session or race to race and, you know, if you've had a bad race, you know, it's easy as an athlete to think that you're only as good as that last race. But again, that's that's always far from. And again, I think that's one of the things that I've experienced a lot in my career is, you know, I, I've had a lot of setbacks. Some of them are out of my control and some of them were in my control. But instead of, again, being pessimistic, I kind of gave myself a little bit of compassion, which, you know, took some time to do. But I was able to, to come back. And now I just keep thinking of, you know, as long as I stay on this process and this, in this, you know, kind of good mental thought, I believe that I can run into more problems and, and be able to, to surmount them. And so, again, a lot of the training, I think, for Xterra, just, again, that tying it back into what you do or how you prepare for it is, is again, mentally sharpening your mind. And that's one thing I, I really work with my athletes on the same ideas of think, think things through, you know, in terms of a high-performance manner. And, um, and, again, you can sleep super easy before your race and all that work that you did, all that training you did, you can just showcase it and express the fitness that you built. So, so you know, a lot of races come down to, um, you know, arriving and 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 previewing a course, and I I know that 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 can be, you know, one of the most difficult things um, for smaller exterior races. Uh, you know, a simple pre-ride of the course is fine. Uh, yeah, you know, again, I I went to Waco a couple years ago, and 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 I left. I left on Monday and I arrived on Tuesday, um, and that allowed me to, to, to really preview. But again, that's a really big race. You know, you know if you're going yeah. to a national cha- cha- a, 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 a championship event of some type, you want to be prepared. 
Um, but I often find that athletes will show up to, you know, races. And I, I think, again, this is where off-road triathlon differs because you, you really do have to know the course. But they'll mm-hmm. show up maybe the day before, and they, and they do everything. You know, yeah. they swim, they bike, they run, and I'm just I, – I, I'm getting tired just watching. Yeah. Um, no, I see it all the time, and it will be, like, hot out and stuff. And I think of, like, I've done maybe 20 minutes of each, you know, the day before. And, yeah, I mean, okay. you yeah. just see people, yet yeah, giving away their race. And, I, I mean, this is one thing I tell my athletes, and, you know, again, I, I get it. Like, you have a job, you've got family commitments, et cetera. But a mind that knows is not faster than a body that's rested. Uh, like, it's just simplistic that way of, you know, if you go and roast yourself and, yeah, great, you saw the whole course, um, you won't, you're not going to train well. And even, you know, on a professional manner of how, you know, you link all these races together, there's times where I go into run courses blind because I just can't run, you know, if it's a one-loop course and has a heap of climbing, like, that's just not, it's not going to work for me. It's going to put me, you know, too fatigued before the race. Um, and so, yeah, I would stress to an athlete of like, just do some stuff around the parking lot and be okay with that. You're just going to have to go into it blind. Obviously, you know, that's best, there's best case scenario and you would get to get one lap on a course, et cetera. But yeah, that's, it's, it's rough when I see it, but at least, you know, when you do get a new athlete, it's usually like the first thing that you correct in their pre-race thing. And the next year they're like, wow, I was like six minutes faster on this course. It's like, yeah, yeah cause you were arrested. You weren't like going in fatigued. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I'll give you two examples of, of, um, you know, that, that relate to that. I, I mean, first and foremost, what I tell people is like, look, if, if, if you can only show up the day before, um, you know, presuming it's not like, say, say like Pelham, which is like a 20-mile loop, mm. I, I think it's unrealistic yeah. to ride that whole loop the day before. I think that that's not in your best interest. Yeah. But um, I always prioritize the mountain bike because the mountain bike is realistically where you can get the most injured. And then you have to triage yep. out the part of the course. But if it's – you know, if it's a reasonably short course, yeah, just ride the mountain bike. Don't worry about the run. Yeah. Um, but 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 definitely safety first. But to speak to your other point about going in blind, I remember 2016 nationals were, um, hey, God, they were down in the southeast somewhere, and mm-hmm. uh, the night, well, three days before the race, like I I had gone there, it was hot, it was dry. Mm-hmm. pre-rode the course three days before the race uh and then storms rolled in and it <laughs> poured for three days yeah. to the point where the parking lot where transition was was underwater and so they said this. yeah i remember hearing about this yeah and so they had to move the entire transition yeah. across and it changed the swim it changed the swim distance it changed the mountain bike course we rode on the same trails but they were starting different. Yeah, they, they, they were starting in a different spot. We had to ride out on the road two and a half miles and ride back in. So the, the mountain bike became a 25-mile mountain bike. But the run at the beginning of the, the, the start, they said, well, we didn't have time to preview the whole course, but it should be about six or seven miles. They were way off. It was like eight 8.7 miles or something. Oh, yeah. And everybody's out there and and everybody was having the same thought, like, when the hell is this going to end? Yeah. And you just, 
you, you just held your pace. You, you held as long yeah. as possible. And I knew once I dropped back down onto the road, I'm like, all right, man, I only got a mile left. And that's all I was looking <laughs> for. I'm like, just, just keep Get going. The road. Just keep going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you can prepare and everything changes and that, yeah. and, well, and that and typically doesn't happen in road events. It's a good way of just, again, pre- be prepared for the unexpected the best that you can. And so, yeah, you can pre-ride a course and be all super prepared in it. You know, the night before it rains and, you know, a wet course versus a dry course, they ride completely oh, different. Yeah. So yeah. all that pre-riding in terms of the sensations you felt through the turns and stuff, it all completely changes. But it's, again, it's just being open-minded. And in the morning, you just sit and say, well, again, it's the same cir- circumstance for everyone. Maybe you change a tire based on, you know, whatever it is and you just get on with it. And like you said, it's the simplistic idea of just do your job work hard and you know it'll all go well i mean that's kind of the best way to go about it yeah i you 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 can only control the factors that you can control and you can control your training your preparation being rested you can't you can't control anything else um again i mean it it gets into probably everybody's mind but it's you get to the point where you're just like look at you've got to take a step back and just say well i have done everything i can to a degree, it definitely does. And I think of, you know, a lot of us, um, you know, there's kind of a group of us, uh, Brandon, Rakita, myself, and Josiah, where we, we actually travel to a lot of the races together. We just, it makes, it makes it a little bit easier and whatnot. And I, I can think of a time that we were all in Quebec last year, and it was just pouring down rain. And in a way, like, we just are actually laughing about it because it's it's like such a torrential downpour that you're just kind of like, well, this is kind of funny. So now it's a completely different course and a different race. And again, in a way it's, you know, you just, you don't take it overly too serious. You just, again, but deep down, everyone's a little bit on edge about it. Cause it's like, well, this is a different, a different set of circumstances than what I prepared for. But the big thing is, is you start preparing for it. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, we talked about training kind of talked about race preparation. Uh, what about fueling? Yeah, you know, fueling for the race. I'm always curious to hear um, not not only different perspectives, but pro perspectives. Because I, um, I, you know, based on my my background and you know, kind of my interest in science and in in physiology, I, I always approach the nutrition side of it very, very, very specific. Um, and I'm always curious to see what the pros are doing and, yeah. and why you choose to do certain things and not others. Well, and it's um, first and foremost, like nutrition is the difference uh, between winning and losing. Um, if Again, if you're, if you're well-fueled, um, that's, you know, a great thing. And so first I would say of like training your stomach to take on calories and lots of as many as you can get in um, because again you're burning calories at a rate that's pretty insane um, I was fortunate enough I was having a lot of issues with um, my fueling and whatnot and I did a, a sodium based sweat like I did a sweat test and found out that I was replacing fluids within 85% which was pretty good because again yeah. you're not going to do 100 um, so it was again I had a good you know in a way like timing to getting fuel uh, fluids in but the big precursor to that was i was only replacing sodium within i think it was like 30 or 40 percent it was like really low 
And I mean, it, you can even look at photos of me racing in certain dry races where the sweat evaporates quick and you see these massive salt lines on me. So I'm just, my body is puke sodium. Um, and so that was one of the first things that I, when I think of like starting to supplement was adding sodium. And so again, it, it nutrition really starts though days out from the race of that, you know, again, you're thinking through eating more carbs, your, I think I start to tighten up and eat more simplistically. Um, and then probably one of the bigger moves I've done is as I get closer to the race, I start having bigger lunches and not as big of dinners. Like I'm still eating a good dinner. Um, but I wasn't eating as much cause I was actually finding I was getting better sleeps, mm-hmm. um, yeah. with not overeating at dinner. Cause again, it's, it's an old school thought of mine of where it's like, Oh yeah, two big plates of spaghetti and you'll be good where it's like, well, instead put that more to lunch. And then, yeah, like I say, like night before a race, I eat like a peasant. It's, it's literally noodles, sauce and salt, um, with, you know, some garlic bread or something like that. And, and, you know, again, to like having, I never drink pop, but I'll have, you know, like a Sprite, you know, for lunch and stuff in the day. So that's kind of the, the preload of it. And then, you know, the actual during, um, Again, I, I'm fortunate to have great support in these areas with, with good companies, and I think most people know who that company is, but um, um, I, I basically have uh, quite a little buffet of gels, so there's about uh, two gels that sit on my top tube of my bike uh, that I try to have, or that I will have, and then I have a basically a hydration mix um, not really at liberty to say, but um, it's 320 calories. It's got some sodium in it, um, and uh, it's it's a very it's been a very good mix uh, for me. Um, and so again, the big scores for me is completing that full bottle before the bike is done. And obviously, you take some temperature stuff into consideration. Right. Um, in, you know, some of the hotter races, you're making sure that you're, you're grabbing. And this is the, this is a bit of a challenge with mountain biking is most bikes only have one bottle cage. And furthermore, even if I had two, I only want to carry around one bottle because I don't want all this extra weight. And so you relying on a handoff to get you a large chunk of your hydration. Um, and so again, cause my bottle's very concentrated, but it's a bit of a new formula that is uh, digested a little bit better um and um and whatnot it's it's a a mix that um a marathoner was using when they're you know he's been trying to break two hours okay um so i'm pretty sure everyone can draw that line of what that is um but it's it's been a very good mix for me um and um and yeah i've had a lot of success on it Uh, but again it comes from the simple ideas of like okay finish your bottle uh, make sure you get a gel. And then again, it's always having emergency gels. Uh, so I have one that I'll bring out with me on the run, even though by the time the run comes, like I'm having one gel with about 15 minutes left in the bike. So that way, when I start the run, I have, you know, that lag time of about 15 minutes before it kind of hits, kicks in. Um, so theoretically I can just worry about just taking on water for the run. Um, and then about halfway through the run, it's just kind of like, you're just cool. You're just keeping the body cool, but all, all said and done, I've probably 
during the actual during the race, there's over a thousand calories uh, that I'm driving into my body. Yeah, and that and that actually takes preparation. I've I've a, a a friend that's an RD, and he's he's been on the podcast before, mm-hmm. uh, and we've talked a lot about this. Um, he he's worked with a lot of triathletes, and he's big into the the plan first and foremost. Mm-hmm. You got to have a plan. I meet so many people; they have no idea. They're running their first marathon. They're running this. They're they're doing this triathlon, and they have no nutrition plan whatsoever. They haven't even. Totally. thought about it and i'm like that's your performance on race day like you yeah you don't leave it the chance but um but yeah i mean he's he's big like you've got to practice this you've got to yeah. your body's got to be become accustomed to it but getting back to your you know your point about the emergency gel um i've got I, i've got a fortunate kind of lucky break story from from uh, a couple years ago at, at a local exterior here up in Charlottesville and I just happened to have my bag in transition and it, mm. it had poured rain the course was a mess but I, I based my nutrition based on the previous year where mm-hmm. the mountain bike times were just over an hour and a half well the course was so muddy that it took 45 extra minutes mm-hmm. and I just happened to have gels in there That's so I came gel, in yeah to transition and i just took extra time and i just i they 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 weren't buried in my bag but i just grabbed them in my bag and i grabbed them and i mean they saved my run because i really felt hungry um Mm -hmm. and they definitely say saved me if not physically mentally totally Um, yeah yeah, yeah. huge thing about that just getting a bit of glycogen in your mouth yeah yeah, so so I've got a question though, um, because you you, you you talk about most mountain bikes only having one bottle cage and yeah. and how you don't want to carry more. Um, why why don't more pros use Camelbacks or drinking systems? And I I in yeah. full disclosure, I was sponsored by Camelback, but I've used mm-hmm. one for a lot of years, and I'm always surprised that um, the pros not using a Camelback. Yeah, it's I it, honestly it's it's two two big things that we all work really hard to work on a good power to weight ratio um and so as soon as you strap on a bunch of extra water and you're carrying it unnecessarily that's just going to make you work a heap harder um and so again it's i'll carry one big bottle with me on the bike which is about 700 750 mil bottle so it's a tall one and then again most courses you can get a bottle handoff and again we negotiate to have it like uh, even sometimes a table where you could yeah grab a fresh bottle so you do not want to carry all that extra water with you and furthermore i don't know if people remember lionel sanders when he did it in um kona because he want he was hell-bent on getting you know 100 percent fluid replenish and there's also this idea of there's this moving substance on your back and again most people won't train with it enough um, and so then they put this foreign device on their back the day before a race with this moving liquid, which then is actually making you utilize all these other little muscles that you don't normally utilize. And you get out onto the run and you're like, oh, my lower back's destroyed. Um, and to me, it's same with even handling the bike, the way the water will move on your back. It offsets balance and stuff. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't just do diminish anyone that does use one and at the end of the day there's people that are out on a course a heap longer than i am and they're and they're moving through it slower that yeah they're going to need more water and not 100 percent then fully fully back it um, but just the way that uh, the rate in which 
we move, and I, I'd say you look at all the pro men, and especially the pro men in the, you take Xterra even in the top 10, no one had a camelback because, again, you, you're relying on bottle handoff and, and things like that. But um, oh, Man, you're but making yes. me feel slow now. No, 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 because it's, um, it's all what, but if you didn't have a bottle on the bike, like some people, because, again, like with Xterra, you don't get the liberty of getting to take your hands off the bars whenever you so choose. It's sometimes it's like, and that's where I say with Xterra, like on another simple note of like, start fueling early and start fueling often when you get the opportunities because there can be large chunks of course especially to take a place like pelham in alabama yeah where you're just riding single track ripping through that you know there's all these areas where it's like now you got to get this huge infusion because you've gone almost you know 40 minutes or 30 minutes without taking your hands off the bars um and and that's that's quite a skill um and again, I've done lots of different stuff in training where I've purposely tried to upset my stomach with sparkling water or different things. Because um, again, I'm trying to train my stomach to to just get on with whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I I I I do agree from the standpoint that that I think it comes back to preparation. Um, I I do ride a lot with a Camelback. Uh, and and the camelbacks that they have sent me were really specifically designed for running, um, so so yep. so they call it a vest. And so there's not a ton of fluid in there. It's usually about a liter, uh, but I freeze it. And so I'm always looking at you know what what is the trade off and what performance gain can I get. Um, yep. you, you know, is a handoff available? It's typically not. Um, mm-hmm. The temperature of the course yeah, or, or on course that, that day, so, I mean, in the southeast, is so freaking hot mm-hmm. that, you, you know, frozen camelback, I'm, I'm two miles into the, the, the bike and, like, like, like it's a quarter uh, 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 thawed. Mm-hmm. You know, but by the first lap, it's it's completely thawed. But if it's a short course and and there are some regional races, I don't I don't race with it because I don't need it. I can get done on the yeah. mountain bike in an hour. I don't. I don't and I think the big thing back. is is yeah, it's just thinking through your process, and that's the biggest thing of it. Again, right. and that's where I'm not I'm not so oblivious to the idea of that I might do a race course in two hours, but there's other people out there that are going to take three three and a half hours to do it. Yeah, those are two very different worlds. Um, and so, yeah, like having ample amount of hydration and fluid is, is very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say there's a reason why it seems that, you know, in the top 10 of the professional men, and again, professional, like you, you do get bottle handoffs pretty well. Every race you go to, if you want it, um, you're just not seeing people because again, no one wants to carry what they don't want. It's no different than you see UCI mountain bikers, they're only rolling half bottles and they're dropping them at bottle drops. They don't want to be carrying around a bunch of extra liquid that they don't need because we're all, we're all working really hard to be, you know, in the correct watts per kilo that we feel we need to, to be able to have success in racing. And so um, then as you add all this extra stuff to your bike, you can really kind of diminish a lot of that work versus yeah, someone else that doesn't have it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, and 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 so I mean it's all about trade-offs, and that's why yeah. I I say well you know I'm going to look at what are the conditions that I have to race under, but I'm also going to prepare for that. You know, like yeah. like you said, you don't there 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 are just so many things that people show up to races, and you ask them did they 
did they think about this or do that? And they're just like kind of shrugging their shoulders. And I, I think that that, that those are big bottlenecks. You know, you know we're always, yeah. you, know, you always hear about marginal gains and it's like, oh, well, what, what, what tires should I run? And I, I, I just found it fascinating because um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, they, it was in one of the, the, the mountain bike world cups, Vanderpaul, um, muddy mm-hmm. course show, shows up in file tread tires and he mm-hmm. rips the course and, and people are like, oh my God, you know, he's, 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 uh, you know, he's got this tire that like nobody could ride on and it's like, yeah, but he can. And so yeah. it, it takes away that myth that, oh, well, you know, it's all about the tire. Well, no, I mean, if you're just the best in the world. You know, you can make it happen, and he got a little bit of a totally. performance advantage. So, um, yeah. But yeah, it's all about preparation. Um, so, so great. Like, you are, you, you, you know, you're kind of getting into kind of the biggest part of your season. You've got some big races coming mm-hmm. up. Um, you've got world championships coming up in, a, uh, what's it, about two months now? Um, yeah. A little bit more in two months. It's end of, of October. August. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you you've got that uh you know coming up um how are things looking how do you feel about you know you know going to worlds you, you know your chances based on the 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 past few races yeah um it is it is it about this time of year is when you're you start to get your head kind of focused in on just like the last two really big championship races and that's utah and, and maui and um again i I have more just simplistically looked at myself and instead just done more, you know, introspection rather than, you know, be externally looking at what everyone else is doing. I've taken markers and training and stuff. Um, and so, I mean, based on where I currently sit in a more analytical way, um, I'm already ahead of where I was going into Maui, uh, in 2018. And, I felt I was in a pretty good place there. Um, I also feel that, you know, just based on how much time I took off this year, um, I'm in this this really great space of I'm not uh, I'm not as fatigued as what I was last year. Last year, I was in a lot more different countries. Um, I, I I mean, I still traveled a lot, but it wasn't like last year. Um, so I have, I think, a lot of um, I still have a lot of kind of energy, I guess. And I mean, again, it's, it's this idea of, can I just, can I hold the path that I'm, you know, hold what I'm doing and, and kind of get some increases. Um, and I believe, um, I feel in my head that there's no reason why I can't win every single race. Uh, so I have three more races left and I think I believe I can win all three of them. And that's, I will, you know, keep working um, on myself. And on race day, those report cards will be given back to me. And I can see, you know, um, how close or how far, you know, away from that projection that I was. But it's, again, the idea of reaching personal perfection. And I'm finally, I feel back in a place where I'm tipping over to that other side of, you start doing workouts and you start doing things that you've never done before. And, um, especially even I'm looking at things that I'm doing, um, right now at, you know, altitude and it's like, Oh, that's about what I was doing at sea level. And so you just think of those percentages and, 
you know, I, I think of, you know, an FTP that I rode just before coming to altitude and you start doing the watts per kilo math on it from where you were prior to Maui to, to, you know, there. And again, being analytical can help you be, again, a bit of a scientist to, to your expect or expectations of performance. Um, obviously there's still a few more things that I need to check off a list of things I need to do, um, for, for that to accomplish. But, um, I mean, no question that my head is set on winning, uh, every single race out and, you know, getting that ultimate goal of winning a world championship. But there's a, a quite a long list of other competitors that want that same thing that will be in similar shape and you need to find a way to beat them on the day. Um, and that's, that's just where, again, as long as you can get yourself into the conversation of being in the top five, it's then a bit of that anything can happen because in Xterra lots happens in terms of someone crashes and all of a sudden you get a quick, you know, 30 seconds on someone and, um, and, and again, it's, it's just, it's being able to have a seat at the table, uh, really is what it, what it's going to take. And so again, I've thought through based on last year, what I need to do and the little bit more that I need to have, whether that's, you know, again, a power to weight number that I'm kind of striving for of a Watts per kilo. Um, I know what I kind of need to do in the pool and I have a pretty good idea of what needs to be accomplished, um, for the run. And again, if, if you can stay healthy and you can, you know, healthy both physically and, you know, illness wise, all while, you know, accomplishing this and again, nailing down your heat prep. Um, yeah, I believe that, yeah, there's no, there's no reason to, to not think that you'd win. And the biggest, you know, that'd be a really big failure to sit and just say, oh, well, I have seventh last year. So this year I'm really just hoping for top five. It's like, nah, screw that. Like, I don't, I don't do this. I don't like train every day and, you know, multiple times per day. And I don't suffer, um, to like think that, oh yeah, I'll just come top five and I'll be okay. You know, I'm training to win. And, you know, again, like I can be okay with not winning as long as I know I prepared to win. And I gave that effort that I felt could win. And if someone bests me, that's where you just, you, you kind of really tip your hat and you, again, it's more of, being thinking more in a you know being grateful and rather than pessimistic on oh i got beat and it's more like wow like you beat me and like i know what kind of shape i was in like kudos to you that was impressive um it's a much better headspace to be um and it allows performance to be simple and not some complicated maze yeah i i always think about um you know if 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 uh, if I were going to go to Hawaii and and race worlds, how how would I prepare um, for the heat? Because mm-hmm. the training, you know, the training I, I I can do. You can do all that preparation, but you know, for us, even in kind of the southeast, um, by October, you know, yeah, it's I mean, it's uh-huh. yeah, and it gets tough, and it's like it's not even the heat, you know. It's it's it's, it's the heat and humidity, and and so like mm-hmm. a, every year it rolls around, and I think you know what would I do, you know, and and it's just one of those experiments that it's like you know you've you've got to get that because that's really going to be a huge deciding factor as the season winds down. You're then thrown back into this this 
you know this jungle essentially yeah and it's 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 a balancing act because again usually you're doing some of your biggest workload and then you're adding in this um you're trying to build this adaptation to heat well in a cooler climate which what i found and liked about whistler though is that in the cooler climate i could get to these upper ends of the zones so i could go very high zone five and you know, if I was working threshold, I'd be in the upper ends of my threshold all the time because your body's just working incredibly efficient, which is allowing you to get very fit. And then the cool thing is, is that then you can use um, a sauna prep, which without giving it all away, I mean, it's I back it out three weeks prior to the event. I start going into a sauna for an undisclosed amount of time at yep. the end of the day. And you just do that every single day. But the most or the hard part to it, and this is where it's the balancing act of um, some days you're just a little too wrecked from the training and that you have to get out of the sauna early. And this is this is training in general. The to to have those increases, you have to be so in tune with yourself and you have to be okay to edit the plan from time to time to allow and account for things like accumulative fatigue um, because, again, it is good to be, you know, consistent and hell-bent on doing your plan and getting it done right. But if you're in the sauna and you've been in, you know, if you've built out that you can be in there for 30 minutes and by 10 minutes you're like, I need to get out of this thing, like, you probably do. Um, you know, if, you've, if you, you know, you give it another two minutes and you're just like a minute feels like five, it's time to get out. And so... It's balancing all that stuff because, again, if you run the body uh, too low, because, again, you're on this razor-thin wire of, you know, this incredible fitness and getting into this incredible space to win the race, and that's basically the line you need to toe if you want to win. You can't play it safe. You have to gamble. Um, but you could just fall into the other side of illness, injury, et cetera, because, again, your immune system is just absolutely getting taken to the cleaners. And so, again, making sure you're on vitamins and getting sleep. And it's, I kind of tell people that, you know, through the middle of September to October, I start to just become um, like I, I don't really want to go out and socialize because it's, the number of people is too large and I'm scared of picking up a bug. And, you know, I used to try to think that like, Oh yeah, I can be Mr. Cool guy and go hang out with people and live these two great lives. But at the end of the day, if you want to do something extraordinary in sport, um, there's a period of time where extraordinary measures need to be taken. And, and that even comes to things like, you know, being restrictive, um, on what kind of food that you're eating as well. There's a lot of the year where I don't I don't lose sleep over if I want you know a you know some sort of treat after dinner. I, I'm like, oh, it's going to help me just keep on doing what I'm doing. But as you want to get to say a certain power to weight number, you start putting these little guidelines in place where again you're still fueling yourself for every session and you're not you know quote unquote dieting, but you have these guidelines of you're eating incredibly clean um and you know you're maybe not enjoying a beer one or two times a week like you might normally do and there's so you just kind of cut out this little bit of extra stuff to just try to get that last little bump um but again it's it's a fine line and it's an absolute balance and 
that's where, again, you can be in the shape to win this race and be in the place, mental space to win the race. And there's just everything has to go so perfect to win. And that's why you don't see a lot of repeat winners, um, especially in Maui, um, just of the toll it takes and how hard it is. Yeah. So, uh, so, so you wrap up your season in Maui, um, and and you had mentioned that you do do coaching on the side. Where where can uh, where can people find more information about you, follow you, uh, yeah. so on and so forth? Instagram's probably the big one. I think that's my my biggest um, following, or where most people find me, and that's at Karsten Mad. Um, so M A D. Um, and then my website is uh, Um So basically, it's pretty easy to find me because everything is just mad on the end. <laughs> um, cool. Well, Karsten, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me. Oh, likewise. I think uh, thank you guys uh, for having me on, and uh, I enjoyed. Uh, again, this is my passion, and it's pretty fun to get to share little little pieces of it with uh, everybody. Well, I'll be sure to uh, be looking out for you uh, in Maui this year. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. You as well. Well, folks, that wraps up another One More Mile podcast. Just as a reminder, if you can, head on over to www.go1mm.com. There you can donate. Uh, Again, you can check out some of the articles that will be going up. Uh, Or if you'd like to email me at go one more mile at gmail.com you can touch base with me with your questions your comments uh your suggestions maybe some help if you're looking uh, to help out the podcast and certainly in the future be looking for some new podcasts i'm going to have a couple tip casts up this summer and like i say i i do have a couple training articles that we are working on but until then remember folks always go one more mile later